pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. By any measure, the 2010s have been a confusing and turbulent and also exciting time. That goes for both movies and the world at large, and that's saying a lot after the 2000s. At Film Comment, part of our goal is to offer a critical chronicle of the movies as they're happening, putting things in historical perspective, pointing out the bold and the beautiful in the art and craft of film, and hopefully offering an insight or two along the way. That's often hardest to do with contemporary film history, and so to grapple with the 2010s, we're starting a series of Film Comment podcasts we're calling The Decade Project. We'll look at the movies from different angles and do our best to map out a vivid but often hard to characterize time. This week, we'll talk about some of the major shifts and changes that happened over the last 10 years, and some of the decade's pivotal movies. It's also an opportunity to talk about the big picture, which probably means having a healthy skepticism about thinking in terms of decades altogether. Joining me for this discussion are longtime contributing editor Amy Taubin, Film Comet regular Michael Koreski, and Nick Pinkerton, who's written a number of essays for us looking at what we helplessly call the zeitgeist. Stay tuned for more of the Decade Project podcasts with guests Ashley Clark, Sheila O'Malley, Andrew Chan, Molly Haskell, and more. Let's go to the beginning of our conversation. Welcome to the Film Common Podcast Special Decade Edition. Uh, my name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. Uh, and for the next few podcasts, we're going to be going over the 2010s, the decade in review. Uh, we'll be looking at it from different angles. Uh, just trying to give a kind of roadmap to the different changes in a, a 10 years that are, are kind of hard to get your arms around, I think. Um, you know, different decades have lent themselves to different characterizations. And I don't even like decades, to be honest, but uh, that happens to be the way civilization seems to organize years lately. Lately meaning the past 60 years. Um, but in any case, I'm very pleased to embark on this uh, endeavor with... Amy Taubin, a contributing editor of Film Comment mm -hmm. and Art Forum. And uh, Michael Koreski, film comment contributor. And I was trying for reverse alphabetical order and screwed it up. <laughs> and Nick Pinkerton, critic at large, film comment contributor, and you name it, what else? Jack all trades. Mm. So for this discussion, um, I asked everyone to come up with a few changes uh, that happened only in the 2010s or pivot points in the 2010s uh, or pivotal films in the 2010s. I, I don't know if it's bad to start with like a litany, but I, I mean, one thing that just was inescapable to me, maybe it's just because of the way one gets like educated with film history and, and uh, the way that I, I came up was, you know, you're raised on certain great filmmakers and this was a decade when just like a whole rank of, of you know people who were a foundation of like art cinema for lack of a better word um, and who were getting a lot of the attention for a long time were you know sons uh, stars in particular solar systems um, 
died, <laughs> passed away. And uh, it's, it's, I think, I don't want to talk about that in like a, just a terrible thing because I think it allows new people to come to the fore. It allows the movies to be reoriented really in a different way. But, you know, just to name a few, obviously Jacques Rivette, uh, Agnes Varda, Manuel de Oliveira, Raul Ruiz, um, you know, George Romero, um, Abbas Karistami. Uh, I mean, I could go on. There, there are many more. Kira, Kira Mortova. Chantal Ackerman. Chantal Ackerman. Chantal Ackerman. Alan Renee. Alan Renee, of course. Uh, it's almost like... We could keep this up for a while. Up. Yeah, yeah, we could just do names for, for a Jonas while. Jonas Meckes. Jonas Meckes, yes. Um, and I would say more if I could read my handwriting. But uh, And then, you know, people who weren't necessarily let's say, practicing anymore, but were still represented or pioneered in some way. Jerry Lewis, um, Nicholas Rogue. What do we make of that? You know, is How does that change how we think about pioneers or in innovators in, in movies? Um, in a lot of ways, I'm reminded of one thing that Stanley Donnan said when I did an interview with him. It sounds absurd. Uh, I guess, I don't know, 10 years ago, he said, like, you know, I'm happy with the musicals we made, but we were lucky because the snow was still fresh. And I, I love that phrase because, I mean, it's just, in some ways, you were the first person to do some things. And I love what Varda said about a year before she died. She said oh. she was busy. She had a lot of things she wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But she didn't worry about death because it would be an ending. <laughs> yes, that's true. I mean, the death of Chantal Ackerman, I'm sorry that I had jumped in with that name, but it, oh, yeah. it's, she's really the first one that comes to my mind it, it, like, it, with such a force that it kind of eclipses everything else, which um, I know is not, is not fair to these other filmmakers who are um, just as important in their own way. But there's something about Ackerman's loss that really hit me hard in ways that other filmmakers didn't. And I think it's, I think it's because um, these issues that we're now dealing with um, as generally uh, generally in the culture around identity that are that are so prevalent mm -hmm. she was dealing with from the very beginning in ways that were so nuanced and so interesting and there's something uh, that was so sad to me and such a loss that she's not um, here to 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 make that conversation even more lucid and uh, it, it just seemed like a, a shattering loss at that moment yeah I mean I think that the world in some way was always unbearable for her, but it was more unbearable uh, a lot because of issues around not only identity, but immigration, uh, the return of the persecution of minorities and things like that. Um, and basically the loss of her mother, which she could not do this before her mother had died because it would have killed her mother if she had committed suicide, wow. you know? I mean, it's, it was shattering, but, you know, very expected. I mean, as you go through that litany of the fallen, the thing that kind of springs to mind for me is the fact, and one tends to forget this, but that among the arts film is still not an old art that it is really two lifetimes long um and what we see i think with you know a lot of these names that you're uh listing off are people who came to prominence kind of mid-century in the last century 
who would have overlapped with that first generation of practicing filmmakers. And what we're kind of at the end of is that sort of second generation that fills out the back half of cinema's lifespan thus far. Yeah. Um, and the severance of material ties with that history is obviously an enormous sea change in how yeah. we can relate to things, but inevitable. Yeah. And of course, unless what, you're Peter Thiel. Of course, what constitutes a cinematic era or a cinematic epoch is completely subjective. Yeah. Um, an, another name, of course, is John Singleton, who yeah. died far too young. Um, but of all the names, of all the people that you mentioned, he was probably the one that at a certain time in my life I was most aware of and meant the most mm -hmm. to me when I was, um, you know, in junior high school and starting to think about different forms of cinema and what they meant. And, you know, I saw Boys in the Hood many times. It was, it was, um, it was a new kind of movie making. It was a new kind of cinema. And it would be years before I was aware of Ackerman or before I started taking Romero seriously. Um, so yeah, we have to remember that um, it's not just an entire generation or entire age or entire era. It's, it's loss comes from all, all yeah. corners. Yeah. And, and yeah, and a, and a filmmaker like that, it's, I mean, there, I think, there are a lot of filmmakers that kind of taught us independence in a way. And, and um, you know, he's, he's, he's one of them. History does seem to have changed. People's relation to history has changed. I guess that happens like every, every generation in some way. Um, I don't know. We have some shift in, in a medium or, or, or shift in, in some way. Um, I mean, I, I, again and again, I keep feeling that we're, we're living in like some kind of eternal present now in, in the way that, that, uh, we, we look at movies or relate to movies and that's sometimes a good thing sometimes not as good yeah. and one thing i think about a lot and i mean the point has been made of course there are always going to be new names coming to the fore but is it possible in 2019 for somebody working in what we'll broadly call like the art film idiom to have the kind of seismic impact culturally that some of these names that you've just rattled off did. And part of this might be, you know, myopia uh, on my part um, to believe that all of these people, you know, hit the culture like a meteor when they did. Maybe part of this is a looking through the wrong end of the telescope and seeing the amount of reverence that was paid toward them uh, toward the end of their lives or immediately posthumously. But I do... I find it very difficult to imagine like a Laventura moment in 2019. Uh, you know, I can imagine that Jordan Peele will have an effect on the culture mm -hmm. that is as large as any of the people who recently died that we mentioned yeah. will have. I mean, um, just to step back a second and just to look at a sector to the side no one will be able to have an effect on what we call avant-garde cinema as opposed to art cinema that Jonas Mekas had. And probably there would have been no organized sector of avant-garde cinema in America without him because he was very wise in terms of infrastructure. Uh, and he was a very good filmmaker, but it is not as a filmmaker that one feels his loss. Um, yeah. Uh, 
but I think he totally believed that there would be people who constantly come along who, um, if you shift your the way you think of what film is, that would be as powerful as anyone in the past. Yeah. Well, you you, you kind of, uh, that was like a, one of the couple of movies that I, I had in my mind as like a pivotal movie of the, of the 2010s, even though I guess it came sort of in the latter half. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I agree that um, it just seems the way he's conceptualizing is, is, is in terms of successful attempts to really reframe things and, and, and really reimagine things. And, and move between television and film, yeah. which is the crucial thing now. Yeah, and Get Out also being something just almost, uh, I mean, obviously made, you know, distributed by a studio, but almost a self-created, like, phenomenon that people were not entirely expecting to have the success it had, um, um, you know, uh, which is always a cause of a kind of, it's always like a vision correction. There was a blindness there that, that, that people were surprised. But for me, that was one of the, you know, major films of, of, the, of the decade. Um, and, and again, yeah, packaging really complicated ideas in, inside, um, you know, a, a more familiar vehicle. Um, I don't know what, what other people were, were thinking in terms of pivotal movies of the 2010s. Well, one, one that I keep coming back to um, actually is... Um, Pariah, which was the D. Reese film from near the beginning of the decade, 2011. Yeah. Um, I think about that movie uh, for many reasons. One is that she has gone on to become sort of like a major filmmaker. You know, she made the film for HBO with Queen Latifah called Bessie. She made uh, Mudbound, which was for Netflix. But it all started with this um, this really quite beautiful, modest film about um, a young lesbians coming out in Brooklyn. And it was the, it's the kind of film that I think that we just are seeing so much of that's not done as beautifully and gracefully as that film was. Mm -hmm. And there's something about the address of that film. There's something about the, um, the sharpness of its, uh, of, of, its, of its sense of place that speaks for this whole era, I think. I think that it's the kind of film again we have an overload of but just hasn't been done to that um, beautiful extent and that she's been able to um in i'm sure a sadly limited way at this point she's been able to capitalize on that and make a career out of that says more about our era than probably anything maybe mm -hmm. the, I, I can imagine d reese would have made pariah a, a film like pariah in 1988 and she would have disappeared and it's a very very positive development that she's continuing to make films. I'm sure she's not making all the films she wants to make. I'm sure that there are many limitations that are being put upon her, but I'm very encouraged by that yeah. career trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess her next movie may be announced today when this podcast comes out, because I, I anticipate it might be a Sundance film. Um, so yeah, she's, she's, she's continuing on, on that path, but it, well, yeah, it's, I mean, it is interesting. Well, sorry, you're gonna. Oh well, and yeah. just specifically about that film, it being yeah. this particular queer story. Yeah. I think that we started to see more and more f films like that this mm -hmm. past decade. It's actually been a really great decade for queer films. Mm -hmm. um, but that was sort of a, I think that was a shifting point film in that way. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think we'll look back and see that she was at the forefront of something very important. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm now that I think about it, I might be kind of <laughs> paraphrasing what she said at the, at the 
Chaplin Gala because she did think, talk about vision correction actually in a speech she gave at, at the gala. I mean, it's interesting also just connect that back to, to Chantal Ackerman and, and that kind of um, continuing um, navigation of like different, um, you know, uh, of, of, of identity. Um, but what other films come to mind for for twenty twenty ten? Nick, I mean, I somebody I've that. been somebody I've been thinking about a lot this week. Uh, apropos of uh, some writing I've been doing, is Samyang Lang, whose film Stray Dogs I could have easily placed on a top 10, but I think is a really interesting person to talk about in light of the subject of this year podcast, because he's somebody, you know, some 15 years back in Goodbye Dragon Inn, who is really quite ahead of the curve in understanding that the theatrical cinematic experience as it has existed for a century or so is, if not going the way of the dodo, in the process of a extreme repurposing, and who in the time really since that movie has responded to that by thinking about and putting into practice a lot of the very same things that Amy brings up, like this idea that cinema's not going anywhere, but it may not look like cinema as we've traditionally known it. Somebody who's largely migrated into a gallery practice, who's uh, working in installations, which is something that Ackerman also mm-hmm. was uh, very much involved in, and which I think is something you could point to as certainly not unique to the 2010s. I mean, there's been crossover between the gallery art worlds and the like cineast world for a very, very long time, but the degree to which a lot of filmmakers are thinking about that as a way to circumnavigate the horrible difficulties in getting a film financed, uh, you know, traditionally... Mm-hmm. You can look at, you know, name brand American auteur figures like David Lynch and John Waters, who have as good as said, it's too fucking hard to get money to make a movie. I'm going to, you know, I'm going mm-hmm. to channel my creative efforts elsewhere. And I mean, if these you know names of this caliber hold that opinion, uh, how much more does that apply to anybody who is, you know, a, a tier below in name recognition? Yeah. Um, oh, you could add to that list a lot of people like David Cronenberg, um, who will never make a feature film again, but will make cable television. Right. <laughs> or something for Netflix. Or right. People who want to make feature films, and there are a couple of them, still think about, theatrical release for their films and still think about an audience coming into the theater together or going to Sundance together. But I think practically speaking, they know that their money is going to come from people who are making money because the entire culture is digitized Mm -hmm. and it will continue to be digitized and Digital is not only a way of making films, but now it's a way of streaming films. It's a way of packaging films. Mm. It is everything. And um, I think that people who are savvy understand that and maybe think of 
what is specific and unique to that. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine someone coming along who says, you know, I want to make films like Alain René. <laughs> I mean, those films will not exist. Right. But there will be great people who make moving images, and most of them will tell stories with moving images. Yeah, and the and 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 also, I think that has an influence on structure, right? Mm -hmm. On narrative structure, I feel like um, it just seems increasingly true to me that at least the Mulholland Drive, which is a movie that kicked off the century, not the decade, but this century, back in two thousand one, has been maybe the most influential film um, that we've seen at least the most influential American film, but I think it's had a, an international effect. There's something about the kind of nested narratives, um, different avenues you can go down. Um, you know, I don't want to say stream of consciousness, but like you decide to go down here, the movie can go here. If you go here, the movie can go here. The movie is bifurcated. The movie is, it's up to you to kind of come up with your own narrative um, idea of what of what's happening. And um, I think that many filmmakers have taken up that mantle and there's just been an amazing, especially this past decade, I think the, the effect of that movie has been seen even more. And I think mm -hmm. Picha Pong has something to do with that as well. I think Tropical Malady is also probably a much more influential film than we know. But I think this past decade, we've seen a lot of films in which narrative, uh, the form itself becomes the point in a way, or, um, and filmmakers are just willing to take more risks. This, this can be for a theatrical experience film. This can be for something that's yeah. only available on television. But I mean, there were so many films this year where someone would say to me, oh, well, that's really not what I think a movie should be. Or that, like people say it about Camera Person, right? Which is a great film, which is a oh, film that dear. is completely <laughs> unlike, and we can have an argument, I, I'm perfectly happy to, but, um, you know, a film that some people think maybe Amy yeah. thinks is not a film. It, it's a film. I mean, it lasts a certain <laughs> amount of time and the shots are put together. And, <laughs> and then there's This Is Not a Film, literally a, a oh, title right. that I... Um, um, but I made a list of all these movies that I thought were reconceiving constantly what narrative is. and what, I mean, By the time it gets dark... The Anicca Suicha Corn Pong film, one of my favorite films of the decade. Very, very important film. Very, mm -hmm. For many reasons. And that's maybe the least of them is, is how it's structured. But, I mean, but, much to your point, I mean, it has this sort of wonderful shape-shifting thing about it where it's just constantly shedding its skin and mm -hmm. becoming something other than what you thought it was, like this sort mm -hmm. of itchiness to slip into a new mode constantly. Panahi has been doing this all 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 decade somewhat out of necessity somewhat out of brilliance um miguel gomez yeah. there have just been so many films in which i didn't know where where it was going to take me at any given moment i was just so endlessly thrilled by that that's so interesting because i was talking to a young editor who said um you know years past i would have worried about not tying up this scene before I went to the scene that should follow it. And I no longer worry in that way, but she said that because of television. She said that because of series television, the way series television operates, which is that you are always forking your storylines yeah. within episodes and then how you're going to get to the next. But I never thought of Mulholland Drive as the source of it, which is very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I always go back to it. Yeah. I do. Well, I mean, and then of course there's there's Twin Peaks, which is maybe yeah. the, the the largest outgrowth of the return. But to talk of the influence of series television in film, I think it 
can be really felt in the sort of grand architectonics of franchise building as uh, have played out over the last decade. Um, I think it's a rather new thing to my mind that you have films that are not at any point conceived as freestanding entities, but can only be understood not only by having seen a couple of sequels, and I don't think even necessarily, you know, previous uh, sequels relied to the same degree on a previous acquaintance uh, with their predecessors, but films that can only be understood within the framework of like a massive narrative superstructure Mm -hmm. uh, to wit the MCU Marvel Comics universe. And I don't think such a thing would have been contemplated without the sort of prestige television breakthrough of, let's say, the mid-aughts. Well, I just think that that's kind of uh, um, wearing blinders because, you know, movies began as serials. Uh, movies began as serials that were shown in theaters, and that's how they got people back into theaters week after week. So you had things like Phantomas and all of that. But then you had in the 70s and 80s a different kind of series, which is, um, I wrote this piece a long time ago in 1990 about serial killer movies and serial killer movies like the Halloween series and all those series were actually about serial killers, but they were always coming back because the movies were conceived from the beginning as series. So I don't think, you know, this is something that's new to the Marvel Universe. I think this has been going on I would say the scale is something new. Well, the scale is new to the Marvel... You know, that is what the Marvel Universe is, and it doesn't necessarily then play out in smaller scale things, which are much more like, you go back and watch those uh, series now, like Phantom Us, and they look like modern television. It's really interesting. Yeah. One th- the only thing I'm grateful for about the, <laughs> the Marvel Universe <laughs> MCU films is that because the scale is so large and because it t- requires so much commitment to under even understand what's going on, the latest one, because you have to see the prior five or six, that I don't have to see any of them. And so every time that I go <laughs> exactly. home, my brother says, have you seen, I'm oh, my brother's voice, <laughs> have you seen the latest Avengers? And I said, no, I haven't. And he usually bullies me into watching things, but he can't do it with these because <laughs> there's no way that right. I could start from the beginning at this point. You can politely say, ah, you know, I just I haven't seen the last 20. I'm so off the hook. I think Iron Man <laughs> 1 was the last that's one a, that I saw. That's a dangerous admission to make. Um, pretty soon it's going to be compulsory to see each I'm with story. Michael. I haven't seen any of them, but I've yeah. never seen a single Star Wars. Ever. <laughs> that is impressive. Yes. Uh, that, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a hard one. You haven't one. watched The Mandalorian yet? Amy. <laughs> Rogue. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess with, the, with the Marvel Universe, it, they, they came up with a way to have like a Hydra-headed sequel structure. Where no it, pun intended. Oh. Hail Hydra, right? <laughs> right, guys? <laughs> Listen, I'm just a nerd. I like to geek <laughs> out on stuff. End of the day, that's just me. That's all you want. Moriarty um, here. Yeah, it's 
it's yeah it's it's the branding you know and and proliferating the brand and and all of that um i mean i but i old yeah i also have to say just visually those movies i don't find especially interesting they just they just feel very dead on the screen um, but it's very difficult to write a history of the 2010s without talking of the mcu like it's, it's true it's true this but, is a market saturation the likes of which we have not seen before and may never see again yeah but in the shadows or may never see anything but again much as what happened with the dinosaurs <laughs> there were small mammals in the shadows and those small mammals are art and independent cinema <laughs> scurrying around and making more of their own and happily thriving um, which brings me to another point, <laughs> uh, which is, I mean, one of, one of the things I keep going back and forth about in the 2010s is that, you know, obviously we you know, would want movies with small audiences to get more attention. But it does seem that there that there were more movies being picked up for distribution by small distributors or for small runs than than a little bit before. Safe to say. No, Nick, you're shaking. Oh, I yeah. Mean, no, the critics. Uh you know all the critics, yeah. Things who vote, organizations, like organizations, yeah. and you have this slot for undistributed films. You cannot find them; they right. do not exist. Right. I mean, the one extraordinary film that didn't get picked up was the Kiyoshi Kurosawa to the ends of the world. Oh yeah, uh, which is puzzling. Which is just weird. Yeah, and that's it. That's all we can find. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one by default. It's gonna win. Yeah, I mean, and you know, under under you know these these auspices, like film it like a center for one thing. They, they're showing runs of things, even things that are four or five years old. They're they're showing runs of some things. Um, I mean, I guess I'll just list some of those as you know some of these places to give them to. Anthology Film Archives is regularly giving runs to things. MoMA is um, Film Forum. Film Forum, of course. Of course, um, BAM also has started showing week longs of of things, and the, you know, Metrograph. Museum of the Moving Image, of course, is also showing um, 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 movies, such as Feast of the Epiphany <laughs> um, and um, others. Um, but so, it, yeah, I guess it's it's not as easy to say it's all uh, black and white. I mean, the flip side of that, of course, is is like sort of from the home home video market, the transformation of that market be into something more of a collector's market, I guess, but not dying i guess in 2010 you might have said dvds would disappear a lot of some people said that now it's they've realized i don't know folks like kino lorber and others have realized that there there is a core that you can return to of people who will continue obsessively collecting physical items i think there's also an increasing understanding that if you're operating through the good graces of streaming services even the things you think you own, as was proven the case yeah. with the uh, Apple iTunes purchases, even the things mm-hmm. you think you own, you don't really own unless you downloaded them and put them on a hard drive somewhere. Otherwise, when that copyright runs out, that yeah. thing is off your computer. And I think maybe slowly but surely, some people at least are coming around to the fact that ceding access completely mm-hmm. to streaming gatekeepers whose modus operandi is to foist off their own original content on you. Uh, right. Maybe that wasn't such a great idea, and maybe in letting our 
video stores go by the wayside and in uh, Marie condoing ourselves out of our physical <laughs> media holdings, we might have lost oh, something. God, you have to see my loft. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I mean, if any, if, exactly. If we've been taught anything um, over the past year, though it should yeah. have been much before that, it's that um, this thing we call physical media is actually just, you know, wanting to own things that we hold dear it's it's and 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 especially over the past year because these you know this handful of companies has bought up all content you're going to be seeing less and less of the things you actually want Mm -hmm. um it's been it's been a slow it's been a slow deletion year after year and studios never liked home video they never liked it they Mm -hmm. never liked the idea that they could only get you to pay for the thing once so if they can get you over the barrel over and over again, they absolutely will. So yeah. that's why I'm stocking up on AR-15s and Blu-rays and heading for the mountains of West Virginia. Um, like a militia of the moving image. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, there's this thing now with Disney having bought Fox. Uh, mm-hmm. Disney is not allowing any of those 20th Century Fox films to right. be released on film. Uh, and people like Metrograph and people who show those films, yeah. you know, you will not be able to show Alien on film or even on a DCP. They just not, are not letting them out to yeah. be shown in theaters. Yeah, which always goes back to this thing that, thing that we grew up with and sort of uh, those of us who grew up with it sort of accepted as this common thing, which was this Disney vault, this idea of the Disney vault, right? These right. these are such precious right. classics that you'll only be able to see them for a few months at a time, and then they go back in the vault. This has actually become their entire operating procedure. Yeah. They want to hide things from the public. They want to completely dominate the entertainment industry by creating, like they're going to make everything a vault. Yeah. Everything's going to be their vault. Controlling the spigots at every turn. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan, plus Rossellini's history films, streaming Adam Sandler, composer Fatima Al-Qadidi on Atlantics, and much more. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. How does this change, like, our, our idea or, like, uh, relation to um, value or obscurity, for lack of a better word? Um, just in the sense of what's available to us, um, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe it comes from, like, growing up reading DVD listings. It often seemed like the next best thing was the thing that was the hardest to get in some well, way. You, you are all too young to remember when <laughs> the front page of the New York Times would have that little ad that would say, secret San Francisco film showing in someone's living room on 16 millimeter, and you would rush to that apartment building to see Vertigo. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> Is this a time that you're nostalgic for? Um, well, it was a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. It was a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely was a part of cinephilia, mm-hmm. that, that sense that, You'd have to go to Paris to see movies. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, what's weird is that, I mean, those obscure, there are other things that are obscure. I, I don't feel like, 
I feel like now things are obscure and you just can't see them at all. I mean, like there's no way to, to track them down at all. Uh, and, and, and it's harder for places to, to, to show films because, I don't know, sources of funding dry up, you know, um, you know, rents have gone up. There, there often feel to be so many forces conspiring um, to make things harder. Well, one of the things is that, you know, cinephilia or cinephile culture tells you that everything's accessible and findable. But if you don't necessarily have those skills, <laughs> there's, that's one thing. Right. But it's also not true. Yes. Um, so yeah. often I'll be looking for something and it's just not there. I, so so like this week I was I was looking for this movie, These Three, this, this Weiler film, because I was oh, going to be uh-huh. writing about yeah. it. Yeah. And... Um, I was looking for it last week, and I couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't get the disc. I couldn't, um, you know, illegally download it. I couldn't access this film. It just so happened that it popped up on the Criterion channel because they're doing a a series of Weiler films. It was just a complete coincidence, a wonderful coincidence. But that's, you know, one out of ten times the thing I'm looking for is completely inaccessible. And um, at at one point, maybe ten years ago, I could find at least a physical copy of something through Netflix or through the library. It's getting harder and harder to find because they're they're disappearing. So there's there's a there's a myth of accessibility that continues to be true and maybe is more true now than it was a few years ago. And part of that also is who has the money to join 10 streaming services. Right, yeah. You know, I mean, this is like insane. It it would be cheaper to go to the movie theaters once a week (laughs) than to join the streaming services you have to to just have a kind of normal accessibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is another one of the kind of running narratives of the 2010s is this total balkanization where you had at the outset of the decade very much the extended promise via Netflix streaming was this is you know the new Jerusalem everything's going to be available all the time always and (laughs) you had this gradual pivot on the part of Netflix on the part of Amazon Prime on the part of really every streaming service to creating their own content so they could circumnavigate the expense of having to license from whomever and pushing that content very hard. And now you come to this present state of having to subscribe to a dozen different services unless you're pretty canny about torrenting. And that's something that, of course, has problems endemic to it as well because there's a lot of stuff that one can find torrenting but we're still kind of feasting off of the leftovers of the boom period in physical media and eventually like new restorations (laughs) stop being done new things you know if revenue streams don't continue to flow it becomes hard for physical media companies to put that stuff out there to be torrented in the first place so I mean, uh, not to be doom and gloom, but... It's also going to get worse because they're going to become more aggressive. These companies are going to become more aggressive in making you sign up because they are not... Like Disney Plus, for example, is not going to even turn um, a profit or even break even, rather, until 2024, even if they get the 60 to 90 million subscribers that they need to make that happen. So it's not like they're going to throw their hands up and say, oh, we, you know, we, we achieved what we meant to. Now it's everything, everything's there. Let's go back to the way it was. No, it's, yeah. it's, 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 everything's going to be put behind more and more gates. Yeah, I, I, it's 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 almost seems like we have, I don't know. Well, yeah, Netflix is like the classic like 
love-hate relationship with with some like corporation you know that that they provide they have a centralization of a huge amount of capital so inevitably they happen to fund a number of things you like because it looks good for them and they get awards um and so you'll have like i was i, I was happily surprised i was i was on a little website called twitter and um someone was talking about atlantics and they were th they were saying i just saw this crazy new movie on netflix it's so f amazing you, you got to see it i've never seen anything like it i don't think and they were recommending and this is I, I i remember correctly it was a guy who was mostly tweeting about like you know um i don't know severin films like this like you know sort of genre and, and, and exploitation dvd labels and he's really excited he found atlantics and everyone's like oh yeah i'm gonna check that out that's really so you can have like that kind of accident of a movie like atlantics getting to uh viewers who you know i mean enjoyed it and, and might would not have come across it otherwise but at what cost i feel like <laughs> just with regards to streaming like in 2010 it was like uh, you know, Howard Hawks is the big sky, wide open country, forging up the Missouri River in our coonskin caps. And in 2019, it's like once upon a time in the West, railroads are in, the big cattlemen have taken over. There's no place for a man to breathe no more. Yeah, not, not wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been on this podcast before talking about how wonderful it is that Netflix, yeah. um, you know, financed The Irishman or financed mm -hmm. Marriage Story or bought Atlantics at the same time, knowing that I, I have to maintain a certain amount of distance from that because they are one of the agents of destruction <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> it is, but it is like a creation destruction thing that's happening yeah. constantly. Um, every time the Irishman goes up, and I think everybody in this room likes the Irishman from what I know. Um, I'm not making any presumptions. I'm pretty sure about <laughs> that. Um, but every time that goes up, you know, you're going to lose 10 other things, M more than 10. What do you mean you're going to lose 10 other things? They're, well, the net, uh, for Netflix specifically, that they keep kind of clearing their catalogs. Um, they have a mm -hmm. fraction, uh, in terms of movies as opposed to original I programming, see. they have a fraction of what they had five years ago. Uh -huh. no, but this is not all it should be said on the shoulders of the redoubtable Reed Hastings. Like There are very real reasons regarding copyright law that Netflix can't operate their catalog online the same way that they operated their physical catalog. There are different, you know, it makes good financial sense that they're choosing to push their own media at the expense of like cultivating a I have no doubt that it makes yeah. good financial sense yeah well I mean one of the other things other results of, of Netflix and uh, is that it makes it hard to talk about other things <laughs> you know it's they take up the, the, the space in the room in, in another way because you know thinking about systems and how things have changed it always tends to bring you back to like the gorilla in the room but um so by way of, of pivoting maybe a little bit um maybe we can talk about um new filmmakers of the 2010s or or a filmmaker you encounter for the first time uh, in the past decade that you know really changed things for you in some way who wants well, to start it isn't someone who i encountered in the first time but you know mm -hmm. i'm going to do my rap about spore okay because i've <laughs> yes, already please. done it on twitter and i got so many responses what is this film yes, what is true. this film everyone and everyone know. spelled it wrong you know <laughs> that was the first thing it, right. they it was the normal spelling not the spelling that refers to as it does the tracks that an animal leaves which could be footprints or shit so yes. that hunters can follow them right um, 
I think Spore is the great film of the decade mm -hmm. uh, by Agnieszka Holland and made mid-decade. Um, one, because, you know, a lot of filmmakers talk all the time about how do you cope with a narrative film about the ecological crisis, about uh, the fact that we're living in the sixth extinction without making, you know, a Marvel movie mm -hmm. or without making some kind of sci-fi dystopia. Mm. Um, and so it is about that. I mean, it's about a, a woman in her around 60s mm -hmm. who has great sex life, my God, with two guys who are <laughs> her age right. living in this terrible village in um, Poland in this great primeval forest that she wants to protect. And also at the same time, it is challenged by the patriarchal, um, the guys who have never gone away, who were there when Poland was behind the Iron Curtain, who are still there. This is an authoritarian patriarchal state and they don't care about the forest and they don't care about the sixth extinction and they don't care about the animals. And it is just a great narrative, mm -hmm. mystery story about this semi-crazy lady, I guess you'd have to say, <laughs> who may or may not, with the collaboration of a bunch of animals, like in a Disney movie, kill the bad guys. Mm. Um, and it is just a remarkably beautiful film with a score that is operatic. So it should be seen on the big screen, but I think it looks pretty good uh, uh, streaming because I've seen it like 50 times since it's been streaming now on Amazon. <laughs> but I, I mean, but it's an old-fashioned movie about yeah. what, we're, what we're going through now. Yeah. And just as a side note, it is bizarre that that movie was not picked up for for distribution in the yeah, US. Yeah, I, I think that had to do with asking too much money. Oh, uh, okay. Well. <laughs> um, it's funny. A, a film that I, and that's a, it's a very good movie, Spore, um, a film that um, that I think about a lot I, when I think about great films of the decade. It might not be the greatest film of the decade, but it, it's doing something sort of similar in that it's talking about things that are important now, filtering them through a somewhat classical narrative that I would even consider crowd-pleasing, that it's actually an empowering film, which is Aquarius, which mm -hmm. is the Kleberman Don't So Feel Ho film. Mm -hmm. Everybody I've recommended this film to loves this film. Mm -hmm. This includes my mother, this includes friends. This was on Netflix. <laughs> oh, wow. For a while, I, I believe it was streaming on Netflix. It's, I believe it's now gone, but it was accessible for a while. Mm -hmm. This is a movie about a woman who is standing up to developers. It's in uh, in Brazil, mm -hmm. and she is kind of quietly being, not so quietly, being forced out of the place that she lived for decades because gentrification is just happening all around her. And she's up against this completely heartless machine, the way that we're all feeling all the time now. Mm -hmm. And the film doesn't necessarily solve those issues it doesn't um end with her um emerging triumphant but there is triumph of a sort and it's the triumph of somebody standing up for what they believe in and it's also just a just perfectly structured beautifully felt mm -hmm. interesting film with that goes off in all these different potential avenues as well um i just come back to that film constantly i think yeah. it's a movie that everybody should see yeah and i yeah he would he would definitely be i guess his first film 
was in the 2010s, right? So he's, he's uh, yes, he's for sure one, for of, the, sure, one of my favorite yeah, new filmmakers. The neighboring, um, neighboring, neighboring sounds, sounds yeah. was 2011, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, ironically, a former critic. I don't know what that what that means. Just a putting that out irony. there. What's that? A rich irony. Indeed. A rich irony. <laughs> Mr. O. Henry himself. <laughs> I could not have scripted it better. Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, we've already mentioned uh, by the time it gets dark, uh, I, mm. I've I've yeah. stumped a lot uh, over the last couple of years for Eduardo Williams' The Human Surge, oh, which I that's think That's another is, film that we could go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, is... rebirths or reborn. Yeah. And, and just is so fascinating in the way that it integrates aspects of new media and the way that it mm-hmm. thinks about surveillance society in a specifically, uh, let's say, post 2010s web 2.0 kind of way. And I mean, I would say last month alone, I was in Miami for uh, the Borscht Fest, the Borscht Core Fest and saw oh. Zia Anger present her My First Film, which I thought was an absolute knockout, which is a sort of multimedia performance piece in which she gives a live run-through of an abortive first film, which I found tremendously intelligent and moving. I was also last month in winter through Switzerland, uh, where James N. Keenitz Wilkins was giving a mm-hmm. keynote, and he's a guy who, since seeing his first feature, or at least first feature that I was aware of, uh, public hearing uh, in Camden, Maine in 2013, has just been consistently fascinating. All of which is just say there's no dearth of really strong filmmaking going on. The dilemma for a critic, for a programmer, for anyone who's engaging with this stuff is like how to how to help it find an audience and how to yeah. get above the white noise um yeah. Hmm. yeah do you think it's still a problem for uh, this is something i think you've written about a bit before but is, is it still a problem of um you know putting not just putting in front of an audience but also making sure that they will respond to it you know a lot a lot of people tend to like oh it'd be great yeah it would be great if like everyone in america would would watch the new a, a notch switch corn form movie but you know. you know i think it's really hard to predict how how to position things mm. and what is going to catch i mean you have an mm. example of someone like not there's no one else like uh arthur jaffa mm-hmm. who was toiling between the making movies and being a cinematographer and making crazy movies in private that no one ever wanted to show, (laughs) and suddenly has become an art world star Mm. with moving image work. And, you know, like um, his two films that have uh, um, gone to the top of 10 best lists in art galleries. They're also on my 10 best list always. But that is amazing. He's 60 years old. He is suddenly an art world star and will now probably make a feature film. And who knows what it will be like. But, um, you know, I mean, he's, he's been a good friend and a good friend of Manolo's also for 40 years. And who would have thought that he wouldn't always be just making a living being someone's DP. Yeah. You know? 
I, I happen to have just seen, he shot Crooklyn, right? I think was he one. He did shoot Crooklyn, yeah. yeah, and Spike never talked to him again. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just a l- luscious looking He movie. shot the <laughs> New York parts of Kubrick's last film. Yeah, Eyes Wide Shut, he's Eyes wide the second shot. unit. Yeah. I mean, it's really. <laughs> That's quite oh, a, that. That's amazing. Yeah, someone needs to put together that retrospective already. <laughs> um, well, um, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess, yeah, for, for my part, just thinking about like... Uh, you know, pivotal films. Like Get Out was one I already talked about. Um, I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's 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 not like a film that I think thought changed things, but it's just one of those that hit hit me on the level of just being such a rich um, visual experience. Uh, was The Assassin, the Jose Sien movie, um, which maybe just came at the right time for me. Sometimes. No, it's a great film. It's <laughs> on my decade. It's a great film. <laughs> no, no, I mean, but but just I mean, yeah, it's it's. It's a movie, but you you know you feel like you're holding up a beautiful piece of fabric and just running your hands over it somehow with every single shot, um, and it also feels like one of those movies, yeah, just you you would put in the time capsule that you send on the next Voyager out into space, um, just uh, you know a level of beauty and craft and just really like kind of gnarled, involuted, but very intense emotion to it. Um, that you know, you wonder how many of those you're going to see like, again. Not not to say that all the other movies we've been talking about aren't great in different ways, but um, yeah, it's it's a movie that you. Almost, <laughs> I almost feel lost when I'm done watching because I wonder, oh, well, there'll be another one like that. And I think the interesting thing about looking at the decade is, no matter who made the movies, mm-hmm. the movies that really score, like The Assassin and like Spore, they have women at the center of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's interesting to look at. Yeah. Um. Though um, there is one film that I wanted to mention because I think it's a great movie to talk about in terms of the decade. But it's such a new film that I'm I'm, I'm hoping that I will feel the same way about it five ten years from now. Which is um, this Argentinian film, End of the Century. Definitely a movie about men, movie about gay men mm-hmm. that came out this past year. Um, Lucio Castro's first film. Yes. I cannot stop thinking about this movie. I watched it again last week, and then I immediately watched it again after that. Mm-hmm. I think there's something so specific about it, so specific about its queerness, so specific to a very particular gay male experience um, that I'm, I'm, haunt, I'm haunted by it. I, I, Where can I, you see it? As of right now, nowhere. <laughs> Sorry about that. Cin- <laughs> Cinema Guild picked it up, copy. so it will eventually be available. I, I, have a, I watched a screener of it i have a screener of it um there's just something about the it's kind of a time travel film though not literally um it's a film that's about where what it's about queer time and queer temporality and how we kind of fit into the overall landscape how we kind of you know exist in the kind of the interstices of life mm-hmm. um i'm I, I really there's almost something kubrickian about it and mm-hmm. i I think I'll be thinking about it for a long time. Yeah. No, I, I, you, that was one of your columns, right? That you wrote about. I it wrote or? about it for yes, for for one of the queer now and then queer columns. Now. Yeah, and but and it's 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 even higher in my estimation since. Yeah, and and you wrote about an idea of, of yeah temporality, a specific kind, of, uh, yeah, and and that was very. Um, well, it keeps it keeps it keeps constantly reassessing what, you know, the parameters of a gay relationship. It jumps mm-hmm. back to 
1999 and then it jumps back to now though the actors never change age Um, and then it shuttles a bit into the future Um, it gives you all these different potential outcomes of this of this relationship and fears and very particular fear whether that fear in the 90s was fear of aids whether that fear now is the fear of procreation (laughs) which is you know the, the 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 fact that that's even a common topic amongst um gay people you know are you going to have children you know mm-hmm. that you're expected to have that conversation how that transforms your interactions right. in your daily life um, and it, it, it does this with not through dialogue just through um, situations and images yeah. and I was, I was I'm very moved by it and I think that it will be one of the films of the decade I'm yeah. guessing now you know it's, yeah. it's a first film it's a, it's a it's a quick <laughs> little 80 minute thing that I it could have been dismissible yeah. but it's not that has distribution or not yet Cinema Guild oh Cinema Guild okay so that will be coming out next year look for it no it came out already oh it did but oh, it's, okay. it will be uh, hopefully it will be out oh, okay. on some form of home video home soon video. okay alright got a small release um uh, where was I going to go after that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, talking about just specific, if we were to talk in some general way of 2010s, like the specificity of experience became like an overriding value, just like, uh, um, you know, showing uh, new stories, new temporalities on, on screen, um, you know, finding the strongest stories in, you know, female protagonists as, as well. That, I mean, that would be undeniable, as I think, for, for this decade. Um, and more than just as a some sort of, you know, well-intentioned gesture by, you know, like a, a, a white male director, for example, um, that's that's a yeah, that's a huge development of the 2010s, and also I guess funding bodies getting behind that in a new way, um, so that affecting things. I don't know, and 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 fits and starts that also kind of making its way into, um, you know, I'm like let's say Moonlight, for example, I I'm. It's still an astonishment to me, uh, you know, happy astonishment that that could reach the, the level that, that, it, that it did. Um, if you think about it for a second and also think about the country for a second, um, it's kind of amazing. Um, and that was even before, I think, the Academy voting body had been, uh, you know, diversified, diversified <laughs> after, after that. Um, so I don't know. That's one thing to be happy about. <laughs> um, um, maybe this is a separate podcast, mm-hmm. but... <laughs> I've always thought that part of my role as a critic, you know, when I'm being flip, (laughs) part of my role is just to connect uh, people to films. I mean, Mm -hmm. connect readers to films. And you think about this in ways where you're writing for history and the history of film, blah, blah, blah. But partly I think of myself as like a camp entertainment counselor. (laughs) <laughs> you know, who tells people where to go and where they can find it. Uh-huh. And I think more than ever, that's needed. I mean, mm-hmm. people need people who they can, after a few weeks, figure out, oh, she likes the same things I do. And mm-hmm. so we'll go to her as her art camp entertainment counselor. <laughs> and how do you think having all this stuff available all the time affects what we do? Mm. The oppression of choice. Yeah. Uh, I, I. Well, I mean, it's funny. You're leading into, I don't know, 
if we should bring this up now, but the, the if we're talking about changes in the movie landscape, we have to talk about changes in the way we talk about movies, right? Mm. This is this is really a huge, huge development. Right. Ten years ago, we wouldn't be talking as much about the social media effect on you know what they call I'm using air quotes now the discourse, right? Mm-hmm. That's a, a term we wouldn't have been so readily using. Yeah. Um, I'm constantly trying to figure it out, constantly trying to reconcile my different feelings about it. Um, I'm disturbed by it. Sometimes I'm encouraged by it, but I'm generally, I, I haven't found many people solving the issue of uh, advocacy, which is what you're talking about, versus mm. carving out spaces for themselves and making it all about themselves. Mm. And that's a natural outgrowth, I think, of the just the form of social media or the format of social media. But I, there's, there's a little too much... Um, self-brand creation right. and a little too much cleverness for it to truly um, bring out the art form that I think we want to push and I think some of our very best critics can get really mired in that stuff and it's it's tough it's tough for me I, I'm often like re- repulsed by it yeah. to be honest <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's partly because of the precariousness of, of, of being a, a critic or full-time critic now you know even more so than than 10 years ago when you know already you know many axes <laughs> had been had swung at, at various publications so it's and yeah i mean there's there's for some some writers feel an economic imperative to to to, to make themselves known and people get jobs by 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 tweeting about what they're they're interested in what they're writing about the weird thing though about twitter is that it's it's such a hole of mirrors and such an, an illusory place i'm using air quotes for place because it's Partly because you are shown a portion of what's out there, so you're already only seeing. So it's this weird pseudo public, but in some ways really kind of solipsistic world <laughs> where you're you're you know you're reinforced in certain things you like and, and certain people you want to see, um, which means other people remain invisible to you. So it's another one of these things where it seems to be a totally new open space. And then because of that, because it's so finely curated that when someone doesn't agree with something that you say, oh mm-hmm. my God, it's like the end of the yeah. world. You have to let them know that you disagree and start this argument that could never possibly be resolved. And yeah. I, it's it's uh, also worth bearing in mind that what's broadly referred to as film Twitter is comprised of like 300 New York media people and (laughs) about 10 hangers on a piece attached to each one of them. And none of this has any bearing on people's lives at all. (laughs) And the less credence given to it, the better. It does curiously impact the you know cultural narrative as it's being shaped but it you know it touches nobody outside of this very small <laughs> reality sphere. check yeah 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 it, but it, yeah it is it is strange i mean what are the biggest phenomenon that have been caused by by, by twitter film discourse is the reshooting of sonic the hedgehog or what i don't know yeah, that, was a, that was a big w for the good guys <laughs> i guess that's one major thing we can thank thank twitter for we'll be talking about that movie in 10 years in 10 years for sure now. it'll be a, it'll look be for one of the major the, films of the next decade in the 2030 decade in review body cast <laughs> which will be just when you put in the the, the um, head implant that will allow you to <laughs> absorb film comment um in, in the future um 
well, um, we 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 I don't know. We have we have some more time, I think, and some more energy. <laughs> I mean, I'll I'll, yeah, I'll throw this out to the yeah. room because you're scurrying mammals amongst <laughs> the feet of dinosaurs. Metaphor is, I think, an interesting one. And also, when you talk about the assassin and you raise the question of how many more of these are we going to see, mm-hmm. I don't know, but I feel like what you're talking about is a films made on a pretty i won't say grand scale but made with like all the appurtenances of the industrial filmmaking mechanism available to the person making them and the person making it is an idiosyncratic personality because i do think it is not too much of a stretch to say on the industrial filmmaking level, this has not been a kind decade to what used to be referred to as auteurs. <laughs> I think there's been a concerted rollback uh, on the part of the boardroom, a, a kind of rollback of the notion of the director star in order to emphasize the importance of intellectual property intellectual property being preferable to living, breathing artists because it doesn't talk back and because anytime you have a problem with your current, say, Captain America, not to suggest that Chris Evans was anything but a pussycat, but you can just (laughs) get somebody else in the costume and bearing the shield. And it does seem to me that one of the key characteristics of the decade has been a kind of willful miniaturization or marginalization in this sense like Hong Sang-soo seems to me a really important and key figure as somebody who has Mm. made a point of keeping his practice as kind of willfully small as possible generally speaking I see a lot of artists exemplifying that Robert Fripp quote about how we're going to have to become small mobile units in the future. Hmm. Um, just some thoughts yeah. knocking around uh, yeah. with your scurrying mammals comment. Yeah, but I mean, there have always been apples and oranges. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, the assassin, no, it's not made on the scale of Marvel, but it is made with a certain amount of money, just like Marriage Story. I mean, I can't, I really don't know the cult of marriage story. I can't comprehend it. It's a fine film, but, you know, I'm not married. Doesn't interest There's me. no story there. Um, but um, uh, something like The Assassin, there are films being made like that, and one of the things that's happened over the decade is that you have two ends of digital technology. You have the high-end cameras like the Alexa and the Red series that are getting better and better, and the DPs are getting better and better at using them, Mm -hmm. and they're beginning to have as many expressive textural qualities in the picture as celluloid did, but they're different. Mm -hmm. And so you can have films like uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, Mm Um, and you can have the beginning of that kind of cinema on one end, and then you have the very small, cheap cameras on the other, which make a certain kind of documentary, like The Cave, possible. Mm -hmm. And 
that's, I think, really important. And maybe all these films are animals scurrying around, little animals, but they are financially viable because of that digital technology mm. and the level at which it keeps moving up and up. Yeah. Well, and I think this is where nonfiction becomes a big part of the story. Mm-hmm. And it's one of, I mean, it's one of the areas in which I feel like I can look at nonfiction in the 2010s and say, you know, this is very much where the story is. This is where quite a bit of the most interesting filmmaking activity is going on. And to Amy's point, like it's very much as with anything in film history, but maybe more so with documentary tech always sort of drives things a little bit or aesthetic innovations are preceded by or go hand in glove with tech innovations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, yeah. And it's a, it's a good thing too, because yeah, it just feels like whenever we have a handle on what we think realism might be, it gets shattered. Whenever we think we have a handle on what our genre genre is, it gets shattered. Or even like, I don't know, first principles of a democracy, <laughs> those things get shattered or discarded. I mean, it's it's been a crazy... I mean, it's inevitable that the decade just at large is, is, is going to, uh, you know... And then you have the anomaly of Parasite. And the Parasite, yeah. Which is a totally... An Asian film, which is grossing, fantastic, mm-hmm. all over the world, yeah. and you know, is probably the most talked about film of the year. Yes, next to perhaps The Irishman, which brings us back <laughs> <laughs> to that. But yeah, I mean, that's that that in, that's almost in a nutshell um, there. Um, but I, I, I mean, I just also you know thinking. I was trying to think of, uh, speaking of genre, you know, um, I want to connect back what we were talking earlier about um, movies that kind of restart themselves. And I was just thinking about the unconscious more and how that filters into films um, and, and the dream life. Because, um, Michael, you were mentioning Mulholland Drive. And it just, I think for a while, um, you know, relating to the, I think relating to one's unconscious seemed for a while, maybe like more of a arc, slowly becoming like archaic way of thinking about things. And then more and more realize, yes, that's actually true. You know, um, you know, the history of the past 10 years in the United States feels like just a story of the results of denial and <laughs> just like, you know, vicious, vicious venting of, 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 of various, um, passions and feelings um that sounds very vague but i've just been interesting to think about that in terms of in terms of um in terms of movies i don't really know where i'm, I'm going with well, that but just to, <laughs> to connect i mean the, the this idea of the dream life yes. and films that can kind of keep restarting connecting that to i think what you're saying like kind of mm-hmm. a political reality yeah um i i'm sorry to come back to it again but by the time it gets dark is per- perhaps the best possible example of that kind of a film. I mean, what's yeah. uh, among the many things that are amazing about it is that she's making this movie about this um, student massacre that happened in 1976, which is the year that she was born. And she's using that as a launching pad to investigate dreams, memories, fiction, you know, uh, reality. Um, but, but all in all, it's about this event that was extremely important in her country's history and which happened before she was aware, possibly aware of it happening, but which has inf- 
vested her entire life and her entire political awareness and thought process. So she's attempting to burrow into this kind of subconscious reality, political reality, and doing it by breaking down narrative into all these different constituent parts, and then just kind of putting them back together in ways that you would never expect, right? I mean, there's a music video in the middle of the film. She introduces an entire new character when there's a half hour left. Um, but it's really all about this event, this horrifying event that happened, and it's her way of reconciling with that. And there's really no way of picking up the pieces and putting them back together. And so I think that's when you see a film that messes with narrative in this way to kind of get at political yeah. processes or, or yeah. how your brain processes political things I, I think that that's I think that's why that film maybe stands out for me every time when I think of the best films of this decade I yeah. keep coming back to that film yeah. because of the resonance that it has it's not just an experiment well, I mean, it's not uh, just trying things with form and I think very much a part of it is this this feeling that the film has of trying on these different forms as a way to get at something essential about this event and in some ways acknowledging the impossibility of encapsulating that in a film, like just taking all of these different points of approach and butting up against the event itself while never like, uh, well, acknowledging the fact that the event stands outside of representation in some ways. Well, I love that idea of, of, of the impossibility of representing something and then making a film that's mm. all about possibility, right? That's really exciting, I think. Panahi, again, Panahi's been doing that. I mean, Closed Curtain, the most underappreciated film that he made this decade, which I think is one of the best films of the decade, it just, um, it just shouldn't exist, right? That's the thing about his movies. They shouldn't exist. He shouldn't be allowed to make them. He finds ways of doing it because he's so driven to be an artist. And then the form that they take um, though it may be bred out of necessity, is also bred out of like this incredible invention, this innovation. Yeah. And so that's a terrifying movie, Closed Curtain, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's probably one of the House scariest arrest. movies of the century. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and, yeah, so I guess you said it much better than, than I, I could. It's, it, it, it's, this, it's this having a personal approach to like these urgent political issues um, and having some formal invention that goes with it that opens other people's eyes to that experience. Right. But the film you're talking about then, I mean, it has antecedents fairly recently in something like Poison, mm. which mm -hmm. circles around mm. the AIDS crisis without ever dealing directly yeah. with the AIDS crisis. Oh, Poison is a great leading light example for this, too. Absolutely. Right. Poison, it's a film that I actually was... Um, Slide 28. Oh. Soon. So we'll wrap up? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. You were saying... We're, oh, no, we're I actually <laughs> wanted to make just a very quick... Since yeah, you brought yeah. up Poison, um, um, I recently taught... Um, that film as part of a, a week specifically on nuclear cinema. Um, but the response in the class to, to um, again, that was, it was a clips of Poison. We okay. didn't watch it entirely. But the, the, they got to see the different modes that it was, was working, mm -hmm. and we talked about mm -hmm. it. They were really blown away. They yeah. were they were very challenged by it. And, and I w didn't know if that would be the case because so much seems to have come in its wake that that kind of plays with that. Same similar sort of template. Nothing's quite like it. Yeah. But to this day, that movie is um is shocking. That's good. Whenever people tell stories about teaching, I never know which way it's gonna break. It's like, and they found it so boring, you know. But okay, I'm glad that that was the happy ending to, the, to that story. Um, so, but uh, I think we're, we're we've we've probably we've spent part of a decade talking about the decade. Um, so we can wrap up. Any any final th words or thoughts people want to jump in? No. 
I mean, the phrase bred by necessity, I think, is an interesting one because mm. spend a lot of time being Cassandra-ish about like the disappearance <laughs> of this, that, and the other. Yeah. But I've also been uh, reading over the last week uh, the Glaberoka on cinema, which has just appeared in a English translation and deals at some length with the degree to which, let's say, necessity can and must become the mother of invention. Mm. So uh, to leave it on a high note, you know, the Fuho Grand and Goodbye Dragon Inn may be closed, but like anybody who's hip and resourceful, to use Michael's phrasing, is driven to be an artist, whatever, is going to find ways to continue doing shit worth checking out in moving images. And... I hope that it, they get to be seen by the broadest possible audience. Yes. Um, all right. That brings us to the end, a, a, a hopeful end to our, our to the first of several decade podcasts. So tune in next time for another episode. Who knows what we'll talk about <laughs> next week? See, we're going back to the serials. It'll be cliffhanger. Um, but I want to thank everyone for a wonderful discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.